We'll be in John chapter 1 today. We'll also be in John chapter 7. So be ready to turn over there as we'll be looking at an extended passage there about Jesus being the Christ. And this is a, an important thing we come to. And the questions we have to ask ourselves uh, right up front is this. Um, we have grown so accustomed to saying the words Jesus Christ that we sometimes forget that Christ is a title, not his surname. Sometimes we, it flows so easily from our lips and everything as we discuss him, as we think about him. But each and every time we say it, we're actually making a declaration that Jesus is the Christ, that he is a particular anointed person. And the question is, what does that title mean? Was Jesus of Nazareth truly the Christ? Was this something that men made up about him? Is it a man-made title? And if not, what does the Old Testament teach us about what Christ was to be? If we just say with our lips that Jesus was the Christ and, and we define it according to who we know Jesus to be, we're just stuck in circular reasoning, going round and round in circles. Well, who you know, what does Christ mean? Well, it means Jesus. Well, what is what does Jesus mean? Well, he is the Christ. And we just go around in circles. And, and so occasionally we have to actually dig. We actually have to, leave, have to search, go into the old scriptures, go into the, the worldview of the people who receive the scriptures to really examine what then does this mean that Jesus is the Christ. And so the question is, do we want to grow closer to him? Do we want to increase our faith? Do we want to learn what expectations there were of the Christ and thus be edified by learning how that idea evolved and how Jesus did and did not meet his contemporary expectations of it. And so that's what we'll endeavor to do today in short order and some more tonight in the details and, and the going forth of, of digging into these Old Testament things and the interim period in between the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus what exactly this meant. So today we're going to take a look at John chapter 1 and starting in verse 35. And here's what we find there. And we'll look at just a few scriptures here, 35 through 42. And of course, this is right after the scene. We meet John the Baptist. He, of course, is baptizing as was his, his ministry. And he proclaimed Jesus to be the Lamb of God. Well, listen to this scene here. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, 
which means Peter. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this. We thank you for this passage. I pray, Lord, that we would have the realization of the disciples that indeed he is the Christ. But even more than that, I pray that we would understand what this means to him, that we would have some sense of the full weight of this title when we leave here today. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your spirit to guide your people. So be glorified in it all this day, for you have brought it to be. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we have this interesting passage with two of the disciples, and it shows us something very fascinating, that this was a subject of debate throughout his entire ministry. And we know that about midpoint of his ministry, which is public ministry, was just a little over three years. And as far as we can tell from putting together the clues from the scriptures, he grew up, he was relatively unknown until such time as he began to make himself public. He was baptized by John and, and really entered into the public eye at that point. But the disciples right away made this observation. We think this is the Christ. And it's interesting because it became the debate of everyone else. And we're going to go to John chapter 7 in just a minute, where we're going to see that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. He had healed a man on the Sabbath in John chapter 5. And that created an instant conflict, an instant dispute with the leadership. And that argument continues on and off all the way up through chapter 7. And it grows to the point where Jesus becomes more bold about who he is, the leaders become more bold in denouncing him. They even accuse him of having a demon. And so after this exchange and their accusations against him and everything else, look what it says here in John chapter 7, starting at verse 25. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? He was preaching and, and interacting with these guys rather boldly. Already, everyone understands the leadership wants to kill this guy. But they go on, and here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I'm going to skip down to verse 40 where this, this idea really continues here. And starting in verse 40, when they heard these words, that is the people, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. 
So you can see John gives us the picture there in John chapter 7 that the public is having this debate about whether he's the Christ. And it's amazing because they have these conflicting ideas and these conflicting notions. Was he the Christ? Well, we don't know where the Christ comes from. And then, you know, further in the same passage, some people are like, oh yeah, he comes from Bethlehem. So did they know or did they not know where he came from? And so there was much confusion about it, but the debate was there. Is this the Christ? Because he was doing significant signs. And as some of them said, you know, is the Christ going to do more than this? I mean, this is pretty amazing that he's healing these people. He's doing these signs and everything. Was he the Christ and what did that mean? Well, indeed, we're going to see that he was, that he also himself claimed to be, as some people will accuse him of never having claimed it. And we're going to take a look at what people expected here. Jesus as the Christ was a focus of the early church ministry to the Jews. I've given some cross-references from the book of Acts that their ministry to the Jews was focused on proving that Jesus was the Christ, and then they would go from there. So like I said in 727, no, no one's supposed to know where the Christ is from, but in verses 41 and 42, is he from Gala? Galilee. No, he's supposed to be from Bethlehem. Well, did they ask where he was born? Did they ask of his lineage of the line of David? So there's this great debate. The picture's not clear, but let's just back up and get to the simple things here. What does the word mean? Well, first of all, the word Christ is from Greek Christos. It translates the Hebrew word Messiah or Mashiach which we can't say, so we say Messiah. So everyone say Messiah and be much more comfortable with that. And so it all it means is an anointed person. The verb form that this word comes from literally means to anoint or to sprinkle or to smear on something. And so you have a broad range of meaning there, but then this became more specific in the scriptures. Now, often this anointed person would be some uh, priest or some king, and they would be set apart for a very special task. So if we go to the Old Testament, we look up the verb form of it, meaning to anoint or to paint or to smear. We're going to find it uh, occurring first in Genesis chapter 31, where it's uh, spoken of very interestingly there, where Jacob had anointed a rock in Bethel. He had anointed a rock, and he had said, this place is special. Then we find this word just blossoms and finds all kinds of uses all through Exodus, all the way through Deuteronomy and in Judges, where it primarily speaks of anointing the priests and anointing the holy places and anointing the people during the covenant ceremony. And then in Samuel, it becomes specific to the kings, where he anointed Saul, he anointed David, and those are both referred to as the anointed one, the noun form. This noun form all through Leviticus is used of the priest Samuel. Early in Samuel, Hannah gives a prophecy of a priest to come that's to be special and to be anointed. And those words we understand to be concerning Jesus. So early on, these things begin to attribute themselves to some figure yet future. 
It's used in their present of King Saul and Solomon. It's used in the Psalms, interestingly, of Israel's kings as descendants of David. And then another key passage that informs us is its use in the prophets, where it's used in Isaiah chapter 61, we'll look at later. It's used in Daniel chapter 9, which is very important. It occurs there, the verb once, the noun twice, in this one passage of Daniel chapter 9. So there's a lot to see from the Old Testament concerning this anointing, and it's passages like this that influence the people. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's that word, Messiah. And they see it in other Psalms too, where it speaks of the anointed and the offspring of David here. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. Who's the anointed? To David and his offspring forever. So David was, of course, the anointed king of Israel, but then it's saying his offspring will be the anointed king of Israel. And we find many other references in, in Psalms. Look what it says here in David, where he has this vision of, of, seven, of uh, many different things, he, and an angel brings an interpretation to Daniel of what he has seen and what he has learned. And the angel says this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Now it's interesting because it's not speaking of anointing a person there. It's speaking of anointing a place. It goes on to say, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to a coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And we come to an understanding from the New Testament clues, from what we understand of the context here, that this is speaking of some of the near-term things that are going to happen in the restoration of Jerusalem, but it also seems to reach forward and speak of this anointed one to come, Jesus Christ. This is the only way it, me it makes sense to anoint a most holy place. Uh, the most holy place of the temple, and at the time Daniel's reading this, there is no temple. The temple was rebuilt. They did dedicate the temple and anoint that holy place. But coupled with this is the idea of finishing transgression, putting an end to sin, bringing in everlasting righteousness. And as far as we can tell, Utopia did not start when the second temple was built. Do you see the problem with saying this refers only to that building of the temple and the dedication of the temple? Is you've got all these other things attached to anointing this most holy place. When we go to the book of Hebrews, we find out Jesus anointed the holy place of heaven, the ultimate and final anointing that has paved the way to put an end to sin, to completely atone for iniquity, to bring in the everlasting righteousness. He paved the way for all that with what he did.
So what were they exactly expecting? Because these are some of the things that inform us is what the word means, this anointed person. Well, they were expecting a king from the line of David, and I think that's obvious from reading the scriptures. But the interesting thing that you'll find as you search the scriptures and search this word is you will find no connection, no direct connection from a descendant of David to this figure, the Messiah. There's no definitional verse that says, oh yeah, this offspring of David, this one that's to be king, he's the Messiah. There's nowhere that ties those together for us. And you say, well, wait a minute, does that mean it's not true? I know it's true. Yeah, it's very clearly true. But it's not clear in the way that we often do theology today. Because what people will do is they will use, they want a proof text. They want a single text that shows clearly, okay, the, this, the offspring of David, this one that's going to come and be king, he is the Messiah. But there's no such verse. How then do we get to that? How do we get there? Well, because we read the passages about the offspring of David. We read the covenant with David. We read the Psalms that talk about the blessing of the offspring of David, the anointing of the offspring of David, and, and things like that. And we make the connection. That's called doing theology. And many ignorant people will say, just give me the Bible, that's all I need. Well, God also gave you a brain. And it's to be used in conjunction with the Bible. And that's how when Jesus comes, they're fully expecting. This is the son of David. The offspring of David is going to be the Messiah. These are the same figure. And you know what? In that, they were right. But they could not have put that together without a little thinking, without a little bit more than just seeing the verse say it plainly, but a little bit of digging and studying and thinking and wrestling with it. And the foolishness that is the human being somehow thinks that we're going to be in touch with the eternal, incomprehensible God and not have to learn anything. But we do. We love him with all our, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So they had put this together. They had seen the connection, the parallels between the prophecies that were clearly Messiah and the ones that were this descendant of David. And they begin to get a, a messianic profile, as it were. And as we look through the scriptures, we also get there. Look at it as Isaiah chapter 11, for example. The word Messiah... And the verb form does not appear in the entire chapter, but listen to this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Well, for those of you who don't know, Jesse was David's dad. So that means this is a descendant of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Remember what he said about his first coming? I didn't come to condemn the world. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And scholars 2,000 years ago and scholars today agree that is a passage about Messiah and it does not have the word in the passage. If we go on through this passage, we find some other startling statements like in verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. And in verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Clearly, this is a king from the line of David. Jesus is clearly from David. We're given his genealogy in the other Gospels. And Jesus embraces the idea of himself being the king right here in John. As he's before Pilate, he's being tried. Pilate's trying to decide, you know, whether to crucify him or not. He's really trying to figure out, how can I wash my hands of this and get this guy out of here? And Pilate asked him, what have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world... My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness about the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Jesus clearly embracing the idea there of being this king without just overtly saying so. They were expecting a king from the line of David, and in that they were correct. They were also expecting a conqueror. We mentioned Psalm 2 earlier, and that is identified in Acts chapter 4. Through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they interpret it this way. They say from Psalm 2, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, there's that word, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they're taking Psalm 2 and they're saying that is, that is Jesus. And that is relevant exactly to what happened at his crucifixion. And it continues to be relevant today. So they were expecting a conqueror. Was Jesus a conqueror? Yes, he's the one who conquers. How exactly does he conquer? Well, those that believe and repent of their sins are transferred from the kingdoms of darkness to the kingdom of God. He is taking people one at a time and building a kingdom. They also expected a deliverer and deliverance or salvation is a major theme of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see the idea of deliverers come along, that we have this great Moses who's going to be this deliverer of the people from their bondage in Egypt. And that is a scene replayed 
over and over in the Old Testament as people speak to it and they show us the nature of God. What's he like? Well, remember, he brought us out of slavery in Egypt and brought us to a beautiful land of our own. And then we get to the judges and what happens? They get some oppression from a foreign nation. They ask for a deliverer. We come to Saul and he is called an anointed one and he delivers them from the Philistines and, and David delivers them from their enemies and there are other anointed deliverer types in the scriptures. Matter of fact, even a foreign king, Cyrus is at one point called an anointed or Messiah in Isaiah 41. And Jesus accepts this in Luke chapter four, verse 18, as we read when we started today, he unrolled a scroll, he's in the synagogue, he was asked to read because he's a rabbi, and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight of blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And here in this passage is this idea of being anointed, the verb form of it, to free Israel from its plight of bondage. When you read the last chapters of Isaiah, this one's going to come. He's going to free Israel from their plight of bondage. He's going to reconstitute together in a new nation all those who follow him as the new people of God. They're going to be described as the new Jerusalem. This is what they expected, a deliverer. But what might be more helpful to understanding what they expected is understanding what they did not expect. So just uh, to review here quickly, what did they expect? Well, they expected a king from the line of David, a conqueror, a deliverer, and they received all that in Jesus Christ. But there's several important things that they did not expect. First of all, that he would suffer and die. They didn't expect that he would suffer and die. And to us, it's obvious. Why? Well, because we have hindsight. We live after the cross. It's easy for us to go back into the Old Testament and to, to read the New Testament back into the Old. And we find things like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, or even there in Daniel where it talks about the anointed one being cut off. We can understand those passages because we've already seen it happen. But Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, which are some of the most powerful passages about the suffering of Christ, have a very important thing in common. They do not contain the word. So often we come and we're like, oh, these dumb people that Jesus came to, they just didn't understand that he would suffer and die. It didn't say anywhere that Messiah would suffer and die. This servant of the Lord and Isaiah would, this descendant of King David that we find in Psalm 22 would certainly have some suffering. Perhaps that was David speaking of his own experiences. He had plenty of suffering himself. But the early church really had to focus in on this. They really had to prove it. In Acts 3.18, it says this. It says uh, that what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So they had to interpret and, and to explain to people that he would have to suffer and die. 
This is what Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, which was a local euphemism for crucifixion, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And in chapter 12, right before he was going to be taken and crucified, right during that last week, the, the crowd answers him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? See, they were understanding that he was referring to himself as this one that would have to be crucified. They got the euphemism. They understood the term. They said, no, no, no. Christ remains forever. You see that expectation too? That's a correct expectation. You say, wait a minute, Jesus went to heaven. No, he's, he's still here. And yes, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, but he is administering his kingdom by his spirit, through his people, his body upon the earth. And so we have this powerfully important notion that he would have to suffer and die. And this is another one of those things. Why didn't the Old Testament just say it plainly? Why didn't it just spell it out? Here's what Messiah is going to do. And here's where he's going to be born. And here's where he's going to be from. And here are the types of signs he'll do. And here are the types of things he'll teach. And oh yeah, he'll be crucified. Now we don't know what that word means yet. But maybe it could ex explain crucifixion for us. I can find one place that shows very clearly, perhaps, well, perhaps why. Paul explains this as he's opening his letter to the Corinthians and he's contrasting the wisdom of the gospel with the wisdom of the world. And he says, these things are totally different. The wisdom of God is one thing and the wisdom of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ and that he was crucified. And he says, this crucifixion thing, when I go and preach this, it's foolishness to people. They think it's crazy. Why? Because they're operating with the wisdom of the world. And look what he says here. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. What? That Jesus would be crucified. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I mean, because you realize, right? What did it say there in Acts chapter, uh, where was it we looked? Acts chapter 5? Where we looked closely at the, the fact that Psalm chapter 2 was in view here and that this would be a, uh, that this was Jesus fulfilling these things. I need to get back to it. I meant to put it right here for you. Yeah, we don't have time for it. But in Acts chapter 2 is clearly this idea that, you know, the rulers of this world and Pontius Pilate and everybody else, they got together and guess what they did? Exactly what God wanted them to do. Would they have done that if they knew? Would they have done that if they knew? That once you crucify this guy, he's going to take over the world. He's going to take it over one soul at a time. He's going to be what determines whether you go to heaven or hell. He's going to be the one supremely in charge at some point forever. And what Paul is arguing here is they would not have done it 
if they understood this. Jesus would have been the safest person on the planet, at least from Satan's perspective. He would have tiptoed around him because he would have known, if I kill this one, that fulfills it all. That, that, that starts it all. And I'll hand him his victory. So they did not see and they did not understand that he would save people from their sins. Something else they didn't fully understand was this. They didn't understand that he would save by grace through faith. They had a notion of a deliverer, but they expected this deliverer. They had limited it to the mindset of one nation over another. Israel's history had taught them that, oh, if we're bad, we can repent, we can turn to God. He'll deliver us from the bad nation that he sent to teach us a lesson. And they saw it over and over, even to deliverance from ex complete exile in Babylon. But he came to save people from their sins. And this is right off the bat. John the Baptist introduces him in John chapter 1, the same chapter we were looking at earlier. This is the Lamb of God who does what? He takes away the sins of the world. It is eternal life that comes by believing in Jesus Christ. Look what it says in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17 here. Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about him. But then we get down here to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Jesus through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace came through Jesus. To all who believed him, who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. He says it in John chapter 3 like this, from very familiar verses, as he explains this to Nicodemus. He said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, the difference between perishing and eternal life is salvation. And it's salvation because we're already headed toward the perishing. By default, we perish. By default, every human being is headed down this road into condemnation. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's believed in the name of the only Son of God. So here goes humanity marching off to condemnation, marching off to the fires of hell. But here's Jesus. Who saves from that. And this is a greater salvation than any saw coming. And Paul formulates it like this in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. And so those are three things there that they, they were not expecting. That he would suffer and die, that he would save people from sins, that that was the salvation in view. But arguably, if you read the Old Testament and you get to the end of the Old Testament and you see the struggles of Israel and their ups and downs and their constant cycle and all the railings of the prophets, the prophets rail chapter after chapter after chapter against what? Against sin. And if you were to come away from a fresh reading of the Old Testament and say, what was Israel's problem? 
Well, you might say, well, they didn't have a king. No, they had kings. Oh, they didn't have a good king. No, they had at least one good king. Well, they didn't, you know, they, it was an economic problem. God gave them a land that wasn't theirs, that had vineyards already in place and everything already there, crops ready to be harvested. They had no economic problem except what was self-inflicted by sin. They had no leadership problem except what was a re result of sin. And at the end of the Old Testament, we should be thinking, man, this sin issue that's the number one thing. That needs to be solved. And whoever this incredible, fantastic deliverer is, he's got to solve that problem. Well, he has. For all those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be cleansed and conformed to his image to ultimately be glorified with him and rule with him upon the earth. There will be no more sin. There will be no more disease. There will be no more war. There will be no, no more of any of those bad things. And I don't think we can fully comprehend it because we don't fully comprehend how much sin has affected our lives. What it disappears from our world if sin disappears from the world? Locks on the doors? Maybe doors completely? Do we even need shelter if the world isn't broken from sin? I mean, you've really got to question everything. It changes everything. And its impact is in every single thing we know. This was not expected. And this has to cause us to ask a couple questions of ourselves. And the first and most important is simply this. Are we in Christ in Christ. Now we know where we started this whole thing with John. We started from the end where he gives the purpose of his writing. He says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the very purpose of the gospel is life through believing that he's the Christ, that he's the Son of God. But then Paul runs with this little phrase, in Christ, and he starts to talk about what it means to be in Christ. And to Paul, being in Christ is the idea of having a corporate share of the anointed one, of the Messiah. No, you're not just benefiting from him. You become part of him. This is why we're described as the body of Christ. See, by faith and by baptism, we are baptized into Christ. Look how Paul describes this in Romans chapter 6, and here's where we'll, we'll wrap this up. Because this has, answers a lot of questions. What shall we say then? Because he just got done talking about the salvation that is by grace through faith, and he is handling an objection here, a common objection to the idea he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, if this is all by grace and God's just throwing out salvation to people, then why should we live any differently than we live right now? He answers it here. He says, by no means. He uses a very strong word. May it never be. May it never come to imagination. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, what he has offered to the world, being the Christ, is he has offered a newness of life. He has offered complete renewal to each and every one who will believe. And so our question to ourselves today has to be, do, are we in Christ? And do we know what it fully means to be in Christ? And I don't think any of us do. We come to a gradual realization of this. And so our prayer today is that we be found in Christ and we be found growing in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we praise your name this day. And I pray, Lord, as your word has been read your gospel proclaimed that Jesus has paid the price for sins, that he has offered eternal life in himself. Pray, Lord, today that each and every heart that hears will examine itself to see whether we be found in Christ. Have we partaken of him? Do we believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God? Do we believe that faith in him will bring salvation? will forgive us of our sins and, and make us heaven worthy that we can be in the presence of God forever. And Lord, I pray that we will consider whether or not we understand fully what it means to be in Christ and what it means to live it out. For Lord, if we truly be in Christ, then should we not, as they nicknamed us Christians, meaning little Christ, should we not then be acting like Christ? in many ways, not with presumption, but with humility of a position appointed and not earned. Lord, I pray today that you'll give us great understanding and realization and encouragement from these things. May we understand that these high and lofty words of Jesus conquering the world and conquering sin and all these things, they're not just something for tomorrow. They're not something for the what we know is the end of times. They are for today and they are for reality in our lives that he can overcome, that he can place us in a good place, that he can purify our hearts, that he can clear our conscience, that he can draw us near and let us know that he is God. We thank you, Lord, for the great revelation of your word, and we thank you for all you're doing in your people, and we ask you to complete it with great zeal, and we ask that we would embrace it with great faith. We thank you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.